This time loop thing. How did you get out of it? Oh, I simply boosted the circuits and broke free. And you came back of your own accord? Well, I... Doctor? No. No, I'm afraid not. No, obviously the Time Lords have programmed the TARDIS always to return to Earth. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic yo-yo. start today's episode by apologising um, for not putting the episode out last week. Um, I just I just had a a bit of a, a bit of a busy and bad week, and um, instead of kind of um, putting the pressure on myself uh, to put it together in time and put it out, I thought, you know what, um, I'm going to give myself uh, I'm going to give myself a break this week, and I'm going to put it all together next week. So I, ho- I hope that's not a problem for anybody. As I said before. I am a one-person uh, podcast, so uh, if I'm not working, then uh, then the podcast can't happen. Um, anyway, I'm putting it out this week. Um, I had a conversation with Simon Garrier, um, whom I met in the very same pub where I met Christopher Allen uh, earlier in the year. Unfortunately, this time round, um, the pub is a little noisier, um, so apologies um, for the various... Uh, levels of rowdiness throughout the episode. Um, hopefully we both spoke clearly enough down our microphones that shouldn't be too much of a problem, but there is a little bit of noise. Um, it was amazing to talk to Simon about all of the writing he's done uh, for various mediums um, in the world of Doctor Who, uh, and to chat to him about um, how, how that all happened for him, and also how he got into Doctor Who in the first place. Um, we also um, had a conversation about Time Lash, um, which was fun at the end there. Simon likes Time Lash uh, more than most people do. Uh, more than I do as well. Um, but it was nice to... Ooh, no need. Um, it was nice to shed a bit of uh, positivity on a story that uh, doesn't often get much. So that's good. Um, I think that's all the admin this week. No, no, it isn't all the admin um, because... I forgot to mention uh, in the intro I recorded in the street um, that you can buy the Target Storybook, um, which was ostensibly the whole reason I invited Simon on the podcast in the first place to talk about the Target Storybook. It's out now. You can buy it. Um, I forgot to say that at the end of the podcast. I forgot to say it in the intro. So here's me from the future saying it now. Target Storybook. Buy it. Uh, Again, um, I will mention my show that I mentioned in the intro of the last episode. I'm going to keep plugging that. Um, you can buy tickets for that uh, if you live in London and want to come. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter now, um, at Molly underscore Martian, um, for updates about all the stuff I'm doing that's not uh, in the world of Doctor Who. Um, but anyway, without further ado, here is my conversation with Simon Garrier. 
Cool. So we're in a we're in quite a uh, a sort of uh, hustly bustly pub, aren't we, Simon? Uh, we I are. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're in the the quiet upstairs bit, but some people have joined us. Uh, hopefully, that you can't make out what they're saying, uh, and it's uh, it's uh, uh, indecipherable enough uh, that it's okay. Um, I'm here with Simon Gary. Hello. It is Garrier, isn't it? I don't pronounce. Yes. You don't pronounce the U. Uh, well, I was saying Guaria. No, 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 it's like guest. It's like guest. Okay, there's very few words that have that G, that just gus out with a U. Yeah, then. Or, yeah. or tongue. Is yeah, yeah, true. Tongue. But um, yeah, but I answer to anything. I've I've spent my life having people. My best mate says Guria. Right, right. Know, and I've known him since I was five, and he should know better. Yeah, but still um, gets it wrong. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Um, yeah, so I'm here. I'm here with you. I suppose. Uh, where do we start uh, with you, Simon? Because you're, you're a career in Doctor Who's been quite long now, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I and all over the, and all over the, the the world of Doctor Who, really. It's not. Um, I guess you're you're kind of difficult to pigeonhole. Well, yes, that's one way of putting it. I I just need the work. Really. <laughs> um, so I'll that's another way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my first. Uh, in 2002, I had my first feature in Doctor Who magazine, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Big Finish commissioned me for a short story that was published at the end of that year, um, but I wrote, obviously, over the summer. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so I've been doing it since then, really, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, but trying to get in for years before that. Yeah, um, yeah. What was that experience like, then, of, of being kind of commissioned for a Doctor Who thing for the first time and... Uh, was it something that you'd been looking to, or, or was yeah, it? Yeah, so I'd yeah. I'd been. Um, I mean, I'm old enough that I was into the Doctor Who New Adventures in my teens. Right, right. Uh, the first book came out in ninety in June nineteen ninety one, and mm-hmm. I got it for my fifteenth birthday. That would have been, um, and about the time, and and was quite excited by that. Thought, thought, oh, doing adult books or something a bit m- more interesting just seemed to me an interesting thing. I wasn't involved in fandom at all. I watched sure. Doctor Who when it was on TV. By that point, we, my family had a couple of videos mm-hmm, of Doctor mm-hmm, Who because mm-hmm. my older brother and sister had bought Pyramids of Mars on video for my baby brother. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then, then these books... I thought they were quite fun. I started buying TV Zone mm-hmm. and Doctor Who magazine. And um, there was an interview with Paul Cornell where he talked about being commissioned for his first Doctor mm-hmm. Who book. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talked about quite, you know, very typically Paul was very uh, honest about mm-hmm. you send off the guidelines, mm-hmm. you read the guidelines, do what the guidelines tell you. They want a 5,000 word synopsis, a 5,000 word sample bit of prose. Sure. And they'll pay you whatever it was, four thousand pounds or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. And yeah. I read that and just went, "Oh, I could do that." Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a manageable amount of work. That's uh-huh. a, you know, that's that's suddenly being a writer, which and I'd always written little stories mm. and comics mm. and mm. whatever, but suddenly being a writer seemed like a tangible, reachable. Yeah, it's thing. funny, isn't it? It's one of those. It's one of those jobs that's like I don't know, especially as a, as a child and as a teenager, you sort of think, "Oh, those are the people that get to do that." And then yeah. this is me, and, yeah, maybe and, I, and often it will take something like that to to go actually like, oh well, I suppose all of those people just did this thing that I'm reading about now. Well, it was it was 
you know, before that, being a writer was like being a pop star mm. yeah, yeah. or being an astronaut or mm. a secret agent. Mm. You know, they were all things I fancied doing. <laughs> I didn't really know what they involved. Right, right. But they yes, all seemed pretty so, yeah. cool and, and stuff. Um, and clearly being a writer was the easiest one of those. Mm, mm. Um, it's the one that you need least skill in. And, and competence. Not sure that's true. I mean, astronaut is pretty. Uh, yeah, no, no, that's what I mean. That, 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 that an astronaut is pretty hard work. The writer. Well, is you just have to be in the military and then and be up for for maybe dying in a horrible explosion. I, I think it's <laughs> a little more. A I think it's a little crap. more complicated than that. But um, uh, but yeah. So I I that that was like a big kind of light bulb for me of just going. Sure. Oh, you could do that. And then. Because I carried on reading those books mm, and reading mm. interviews with the writers who were all like, well, I followed the guidelines and I got commissioned. Yeah. There was yeah. that kind of, um, I mean, you know, it's no coincidence that the New Adventures were published by Virgin, who'd also sort of been a punk record label. Because mm. it was that punk sensibility of th that you can be part of this. Yeah, yeah. And I, that really got me, re really, whatever. So I, yeah, I sent my first thing in when I was 18. Mm -hmm. It was dreadful. Um, and I got a rejection letter, but I got a very generous rejection letter. They were they were very nice, mm -hmm. um, and I carried on sending stuff. And then when I was a student, the internet was new. Mm. I was one of the mm. few people on my course. This is a, uh, I was at university when the TV movie was on. I was one right. of the few people on my course to go and find where the computer rooms were. Um, and I had an email address and uh -huh, stuff, uh -huh, uh -huh. and knew, you know, once a week I would go and look at some Doctor Who web pages to see yeah. what the latest news <laughs> was, um, and felt myself extremely well informed. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's mad how the internet has gone from being something that you, that you went and did a couple of times a week, to something that is just in you. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. the 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 idea that you would come home from from school and you'd and you'd go in the computer room. And you'd sit on the and you'd sit on the computer for an hour, and then that that would be it. That's your internet time done. But but also, and now it's, you had to, it's just part of you, you know. But but also, you know, even even at the point of the TV show Doctor Who coming back in two thousand and five, you know, there's there's bits in um, Aliens of London, isn't there, where where Mickey basically goes, "Can I use the internet?" Because it means the phone is not going to work. Yeah, you, it's yeah. all down the line and stuff. Um, and you had that weird dial-up noise. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was loading. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it, so I I am of those dark ages, yeah. and um, yeah. and when I was doing my masters mm -hmm. uh, in '97 '98, I joined a mailing list. Uh, I'd looked at because I was only looking once a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, rec arts, Doctor Who, and things were too busy for me. I couldn't keep up, mm. so I was looking for something that was a bit more uh, leisurely mm, and mm. I, and on that basis, and because I wanted to be a writer, yeah, yeah. Uh, a writer called Kate Allman, mm. one of the Doctor Who book writers ran a mailing list called right. Alan Road, I think. Okay. And I joined that and that was a good small scale yeah. bookish Doctor Who thing. And, um, and then in 97, I think, yeah, License Denied came out, which was Paul Cornell's book of, a virgin book of fanzine material yeah. 
which yeah. again just seemed like a really punk sense. You know, I didn't really know fanzines at the mm, time, mm. but that just seemed a really exciting look at this interesting stuff that people can do. I mean, the, the fanzine and, the, and the, the sort of amateur magazine has always been such an exciting thing to me, and it's something that I sort of missed because yeah. I'm slightly too young to have ever. Ex- to have ever really experienced that because the internet was too much a part of everything kind yeah. of by then. Yeah, well, the internet just took it all over. Yeah, really. this idea of having a homemade black and white magazine that you would just sort of leave around your university or whatever or people yeah, would yeah. come and find you. And, um, yeah, I ran a, I helped run a, um, a sort of poetry and art magazine at, at, at uni. And uh, one year uh, when, I be- when I came in charge of it, uh, I suggested that we start uh, just making it out of... Uh, on the photocopier <laughs> out of and writing everything down and everybody just said uh, no we're not doing that it's, uh, it's insane but I think it's because I've always kind of romanticised the idea of that sort of fanzine and early zine kind of uh, culture yeah, yeah. I suppose yeah yeah, yeah well I, I mean I ended up doing a fanzine of my own because um, on this mailing list there are a few of us having read Licence Denied talking about going to the Doctor Who pub Mm. Where you know, in the days when you could fit Doctor Who fandom in a pub, mm, mm. Um, the, the, fi- the Fitzroy, yeah, the Fitzroy's Haven. Um, so me and three other members of that list mm. all agreed that we would meet, so that we didn't have to go alone. Yeah, we'd all meet yeah. up first, yeah, and we'd go. So that was me and Eddie Robson uh-huh. and Will Howells and Matt Michael, mm. uh, uh, and I then didn't go to that first meetup because I was in the process of splitting up with my then girlfriend and it right. life was a little complicated. Uh-huh. So I went the following month to discover that Eddie and Will and Matt had made friends already with people and whatever. And I kind of stood there like a lemon right, right. going, what do I do? Sure. And um, uh, Andy Lane said to me, who I'd never met before or anything, he no. said, are you new? Yes, do you know anybody? No, would you like to come and talk to us? And he and Paul Simpson... Uh, he was at the time I think he was the editor of Dreamwatch magazine which kind of looked after me that first time that's stuff. really nice I think that, that, as much as there's there's uh, always going to be problems and debates amongst Doctor Who fans I think that is one thing we are uh, which is kind of welcoming to new people I would hope anyway yeah I hope so the vast I majority so. of us are um, it's funny Andy Lane is really successful now writing the, the young Sherlock books for children isn't he that's right he's, and, he's um, uh, you know he's, he's a hugely successful, successful children's yeah. author and he um he used to run a, well, he still runs a, a, a story writing prize at um, the school that I used to work at until July. Oh, okay. And um, he came in to announce the winners of the prize in an assembly one day. And I'm, I'm standing there in the doorway, sort of manning the door. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, that's Andy Lane. He's a Doctor Who guy. And he's looking at my TARDIS tattoo. And he definitely noticed it. He's looking at it. And I'm going, you're Andy Lane. He's going, you've got a TARDIS tattoo. And I never spoke to him, but... Um, he, uh, yeah, so it was nice to have a little bit of Doctor Who in my work day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, he, you know, he was, uh, he was very kind. He's, we still, I saw him at the Big Finish party a couple mm. of months ago. Mm. And, um, yeah, we've been out drinking in LA and sure. stuff like that. And, yeah, uh, but, yeah, so I was kind of, I don't know, I, I, I was so entranced by there was a pub and you could talk to people and mm. people who knew the sort of stuff that I was into yeah yeah like not just people who liked it a bit but yeah, like yeah yeah and, and got the like references you. and yeah. got the whatever and, and that that although I knew people who were into Doctor Who was a, when I was a kid and stuff yeah. this was all very uh, intoxicating really. sure yeah. and I just went to that pub and got 
because I was very anxious and also stupid, I just got really pissed at people I thought were amazing. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Which is not, I don't recommend that no. as a way to impress people. Because the, the following day, the, the sort of hangover shame you get anyway feels even worse because you're like, oh my God, what if I said something incredibly embarrassing to these people I admire? Yeah, and yeah, want, yeah. And, and, and also <laughs> just want to be liked by. I've just you know? come across as a prick. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to come. But you especially, you don't want to come across as a prick anyway, but you don't want to come across as a prick as people you you desperately want to like yeah yeah and, people and, you know, you and all, and all of that kind of stuff of trying too hard and yeah yeah all of that but yeah. um yeah and then i've been going about a year and paul cornell was talking to me and eddie about we were kind of saying we always talk to the same people uh -huh, each uh -huh. month in month out and paul said well to get yourself known and to have people know who you are and what you're into do a fanzine sure i was like okay so I turned up the following months with the fanzine that I'd started about 11 o'clock the night before. Mm -hmm. And Eddie had spent his month, that month, making a really good one. <laughs> um, damn him and his talent. Um, so I got known for that. And uh, was still pitching stuff, still sending things in. And then Paul introduced me to one of the... Uh, I took one of my rejection letters from BBC Books to, <laughs> right. the, to the Fitzroy Tavern to show some of the other people who were also trying to get mm, into the mm. books. And Paul was so entertained by the fact that I was rather proud of this rejection letter. Yeah, yeah. And it was like a form letter, but it had handwritten comments added on it. Right. And he says, that's um, written, those, those, I recognize the handwriting, that's Jack Rayner's handwriting. She's over there, do you want me to introduce you? So I was rather sheepishly introduced to Jack. <laughs> Who With was a printout of your, of your letter as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. He was lovely. And she, she mm. said what she said in the letter, which is that she thought my prose was fine, but the structure of the plots and right, stuff okay. needed some work. And so I carried on pitching to her. And then in 2002, uh, I was facing being made redundant at work and was thinking about going redundant. As a, uh, uh, I was thinking that going redundant, I would have enough money to go freelance as a copy editor. Right, right. And was looking around for bits of work and mm, stuff. Mm. And Johnny Morris, who I knew through the pub, said that to Jack mm. and said, Simon's looking for work and whatever. And Jack, out of the blue, as far as I was concerned, said, big finish of doing a book of short stories. Would you like to pitch for it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Bearing in mind that if I can get anyone better, I will. If I can get big names, I will. Mm. And I got in that. So that was, that was my first thing. Yeah. Exciting. I was going to mention Johnny Morris earlier because I, um, what you were talking about at the start about getting the the first commission and everything reminded me of his forward to uh, his book Festival of Death, where he talks about working as the publicist for Erasure and, and yeah. getting the, the the commission and it just being like a whole real life changing moment. And I suppose, yeah, it, it just evoked that for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. He know, was a, he was the head of the Erasure Information Service, yeah. the sort of fan <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you'd be. I guess the equivalent now would be like digital marketing manager for Erasure. I suppose. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, maybe we'll let's rewind a bit then and, and have a think about. Um, if you mind holding the mic a little closer as well, just because we've got a bit more noise. Uh, okay. Um, if we just rewind a little bit and um, and think about when you first became a Doctor Who fan, presumably as a child, and uh, and how that all started. Well, I. I started my, my fir the first episode I remember uh -huh. is the first episode of Full Circle in 1980. Right. Possibly I remember the repeat. I'm not sure, but um, 
Doctor Who was a very serious adult show that my older brother and sister watched mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and always watched. Mm -hmm. And are they I still into it now? Or no, right. no, no, they go, they go out of it. I think the last time, so they watched the Five Doctors. Okay. I remember us all watching the Five Doctors and drawing the curtains and turning the lights off okay. to make it more like a cinema. Um, and they watched the regeneration the following year. Just that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but they, yeah, they used to, and still do, mock me about being into it. Um, there was a phase when my elder brother's son was quite into it. Right. Which was a bit awkward. Uh -huh. you know, they didn't want to make too much of that. And was hoping it would be a phase he'd grow out of, which he did. But you were presumably quite excited about it. You could be like cool Uncle Simon, right? Uh, well, I've never been cool Uncle Simon. <laughs> Um, I yeah, they were quite pleased when I dedicated a book to them. Mm. Um, but yeah, I um, so it, weirdly, when I had my first novel published, mm -hmm. the, the, the Time Travelers in two thousand and five, there were a few people in my fa in my sort of wider family who wanted a copy of it, not because they liked Doctor Who, but just because I'd written a book. Yeah. So my. My dad was getting me to sign copies for like aunties and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. stuff. And my great aunt, who I'd seen a lot of when I was a kid, mm. um, I, she lived in France, so I was asked to send her a book. Right, and I was right. like, okay, well, I need to explain what this is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I wrote a kind of letter going, well, there's this TV show called Doctor Who. Yeah. It's, quite, it's come back this year and it's quite big, but my book is set in the 1960s and... Whatever sure. and, and whatever and she sent me a a lovely reply saying oh no you don't need to explain I watched I, we were devoted to it <laughs> in the sixties cool. and your your late great uncle was really into it uh -huh. and and wouldn't go out on a Saturday night until he'd seen it because he saw it as the program of the future and whatever wow so I was like and my my great uncle he died in uh, nineteen eighty four right I think right and he was a a, a a hurricane pilot during the Battle of Britain and stuff quite a you know, distinguished, sure. heroic sort of figure yeah. who I, I just about remember. And um, so I said to my mum and dad, this is the letter I've got. Apparently Roddy was quite into Doctor Who. Uh -huh. And my parents were like, yeah, he was. <laughs> and you're thinking, why you didn't you mention this thought, earlier? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you never, in those dark, lonely moments of nobody getting my, what yeah. I was into or where I was, it never occurred to <laughs> you to go, not once, not, not, but yeah, they just hadn't made that connection or, or seen how important that would have been or, or sure. whatever. So um, yeah, I, I um, yeah, I, I, I had this kind of thing that Doctor Who was just a thing that people watched, you know, mm -hmm. in the early eighties. It wasn't, it wasn't anything special. It's just that that's what we talked about at school. That's sure. what that's what people watched. Yeah. Um, when. Uh, we're around the time of Trial of a Time Lord, about the time, so I, I moved into, I started secondary school the week before Time of the Rani was on. Okay. And that was, you know, it was a different school. I, mm, I mm. went to secondary school with two or three of the people I'd been at primary school with and that sort of thing. So, yeah, after Time of the Rani episode one was on, I mentioned Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And the response was, oh, do you watch that? Like... Or are you still watching that? Right. You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and suddenly it was not, not no longer the the big popular thing, which which wasn't any indication of the show. It was kind of our age and also just a different group of people. 
but yeah, but maybe a bit an indication of the show at that point, though, right? Yeah, I, I just think, I, I, you know, I, I just don't think read too, don't read too much into where I was at the time. It was just I'd changed schools yeah, and it's a different so. group of people. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, suddenly Doctor Who was a thing that I watched mm, and mm. my brothers watched, and I knew a few other people who did. Yeah, um, yeah. But not many. Uh-huh. It was suddenly like a minority interest. For sure. Um, and you had to. You know, I wasn't buying. I wasn't buying the magazine at that point. I wasn't. We didn't get listings, magazines, or newspapers, whatever. Mm. So I never knew it was going to be on. Yeah. You know. So yeah. so I started buying Doctor Magazine in '91, mm-hmm. kind of going. Well, surely it's been a year. What, what you know? Why is it not on anymore? But, oh God, yeah, true. You know, I was completely oblivious to the hiatus in '91. There's, there's no like Twitter speculation every day, like there isn't. Yeah, yeah, there just would be nothing that. like that at all. It's just. It's yeah. just I knew it was on kind of every year. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it's not as if it, w- it happened on Clockwork, in, like Clockwork anyway, I suppose. Yeah, so yeah. You're, you're just waiting. Oh, maybe they'll maybe I'll s- it'll come on one night. Um, yeah, oh God, that doesn't bear thinking about. <laughs> it makes me feel a bit sick. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, because I was only casually following it, really. Yeah. You know, as yeah. much as I liked it. Yes. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. I... I guess I want to ask them, kind of moving on to kind of the, the stories you've written in the, in the world of Doctor Who. Sure. This might seem like a, a question you've been asked uh, many, many times before, but it, I, I don't know, I'm drawn to it for some reason. Uh, maybe because you've written over lots of different kinds of uh, uh, medium short stories, novels uh, and audio plays. Kind of where do you start with a, with a Doctor Who story? It, would, it, would it be in such a broad range of stories that you can draw from? Where, how well, do you come up with a Doctor Who idea? Well, well, there's two things to that. One is, how do you not? I right, spend my okay. whole time yeah, yeah, yeah. thinking of Doctor Who yeah, stories. Or, okay. or, or things that I could use. or and, and maybe not, you know, bits of lines of dialogue or mm, mm. an idea for a monster or, a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, oh, there's something in, something that's been in the news or whatever. And that might not be a Doctor Who idea, but, but sure. I tend to scribble those down and keep them in my notebooks and stuff. But, yeah. but then... What I get is um, nowadays, what I get is um, commissioning editors right. saying, "This doctor, can you do a space story?" Right. You know, I suppose that makes life a little easier. Yeah, and so you've got that starting point. Yeah. yeah so, so, yeah. Or, or we've got this compa- we've got this companion actress. Right. For three days, uh-huh. could uh-huh. you write something for her? Uh huh. Um, yeah. That sort of thing, or, or Peter Purvis wants to do more comedy, or, or whatever that might be. Yeah, and you kind of, you kind some of kind of small that. stimulus, I suppose. Yeah, it must be really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when I was starting, um, I was just trying to get people to notice. That, yeah. that was my main. How can I get anyone? What can I do that will get people's attention? Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, does that mean? Does that mean? Um, trying to do something really traditional or does that mean going really outrageous or, or does it mean neither of those things? A bit of both, to yeah. be honest. Um, I was trying, you know, I sent in so many different things. I was trying everything I could think of. Um, yeah. So the first thing I pitched to Virgin was called Mondas. Right. And was basically trying to, the doctor trying to rescue Adric from the end okay. of Earth shop. Uh-huh. Uh, and I thought it was this extraordinary, epic, thrilling adventure. Uh-huh. 
it's not, it's just a mess of continuity references. When I got that very nice letter mm. saying this is a mess of continuity references and not much else, mm. I was then like, right, what I must write is the serious novel. So mm. I, you know, I took my... When really probably the, 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 the desirable one lies somewhere in between, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, so I was like, right, I'm going to set a story in the desert and I'm going to, <laughs> it's going to be full of, uh, it's going to be like Hemingway in the sand mm. or mm. whatever. And, mm. and slowly what you do by, by writing and stuff is you kind of go what works and what doesn't and you you know you slowly get somewhere where you're writing something and when i when i got my first story mm -hmm. so jack said um we're going to do a book called zodiac mm. it's going to be 12 stories one with a and each one is going to be linked to a sign of the zodiac and i'm after a one paragraph idea from them mm -hmm. for one of the signs of the zodiac and i was keen but i knew that sending her pitches for all 12 was going to look too too keen, keen. Yeah. yeah 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 so i sent her six right and within those six i tried to cover all the bases yeah, yeah. so i went for something a bit mad and experimental mm. something really silly something mm. whatever and the one she liked was the perky one the switching which is what she commissioned sure um what base does that fall into which was kind of traditional unit right Right. Basically, do a kind of. But I, I suppose that doesn't mean anything in terms of like what might work on another day, because you because I suppose it would have depended on what lots of other writers had, yeah, had, yeah, had yeah. pitched as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, yeah, there's just no there's just no one size fits all method, I suppose, when exactly, you're pitching stories. Exactly. You just you know, um, and and yes, what I wrote fitted in with what she wanted, and mm, mm. you know, I don't know, maybe nobody else had pitched a John Pertwee story or, yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah. it was but, but yes you, you're not in control of any of those no, things no no so absolutely not yeah but I suppose that the one thing you can do is, is try lots and lots of different things like you did yeah and, yeah, and, yeah. You know, and I was and pitching everywhere not yeah. just to Doctor Who but anywhere I thought anyone yeah. would be interested yeah, yeah. so you know newspapers and 2000 AD who've uh -huh. I've only had rejections from, and you know, uh -huh. anybody. Because that's always the one people point to, isn't it? People say, "Oh, if you want to start out as a writer, you should pitch to 2000 AD." That's well, the well, one 2000 AD still to. has an open, open submissions, submissions policy. Yeah. Doctor Who did have an open submissions policy mm. until mm. me, because mm -hmm. I was the last person commissioned under oh, that really? system. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Me and Nick Wallace in in uh, when the new series was coming yeah. back. So I suppose when, when, the, when the novels moved to being the new series adventures, is that kind of when the open submissions policy well, ended? There were a number of things, one of which is that um, they stopped doing old Doctor Who. Mm, mm. But also because, so there was a bit of an overlap. So mm -hmm, my mm. Time, the Time Travellers came out in November t 2005. Yeah, so I remember this, this weird overlap that yeah, felt, so, so felt, brilliant, yeah, felt like brilliant Justin on. Richards, who was in charge of the books at the time, he had been there in 96 when the TV movie mm -hmm. had come and the BBC had ended the license that Virgin had to do mm -hmm. Doctor Who books mm -hmm. because the BBC thought the Eighth Doctor is going to be this huge thing right? and it wasn't mm -hmm. and they effectively ended this rather successful range mm -hmm. and stuff and Justin was like well my understanding is that he told Russell in the production team in Cardiff mm. oh yes of course we'll stop the paperbacks but I've commissioned them up until the end of 2005 yeah so yes of course we'll stop but but there will be this overlap yeah which is basically him hedging his bets hedging his bets whether, I mean yeah you know and thank heavens he did because that meant me and Nick got commissioned 
Yeah, I mean, although, you know, there's an alternate universe where where Series 1 was a disaster and, you know, the novel line just picks up and, and, there's, and then there's Eccleston novels and that's yeah. what Doctor Who is for the next 10, 15 years, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I suppose that's what Justin was thinking about. Yeah, uh, you know, and very shrewd thinking, but... Because it had gone wrong once before in '96, right? In a way, do, yeah. do, uh, Telly Doctor Who had, I mean, and, that, and, and, and because the Telly books had to, because of those hardbacks, yeah. which were massively successful, mm -hmm. you know, they sold loads. those Eccleston hardbacks. You mean those Eccleston books? Oh, yeah, I mean, they were, they were, they were I mean, phenomenal. You walk into a charity shop now, and you and you look for Doctor Who stuff. It's always like. Uh, only human, clockwise man. Yeah, yeah. And then so the tenant ones, you know, it's so always by the time those I wrote kids who pass those on to charity shops. Yeah, you know? yeah. By the time I wrote for, I wrote my first one of those, which came out in the Pirate Luke. Pirate Luke came out at, at the end of 2007. Mm. So that was like two and a half years after the first lot. Things had died down. It didn't sell. The Pirate Luke sold much more within the realm of what the paperbacks were selling. Okay. You know. Um, more, but but not a lot more. Okay. Whereas those those Eccleston ones were because it was such a hit, and mm. it was, you know, mm. and nobody else had books and whatever. So, um, but those books had to be tied in with the production office in Cardiff. Right. So the authors all had to be approved and mm. probably needed to have access to scripts and know what was happening and whatever. So there was no way you could do an unsolicited. Pile. No, no, you, I suppose not. They needed not. to be pre-approved writers and stuff, and yeah. that's still an issue. Mm. You know, I I am now approved to read things and see things, mm. and mm. you know, I've read scripts in advance of broadcast mm. and broadcast mm. and stuff. Um, so, so you just can't run an unsolicited submissions thing now. Yeah, it's difficult, especially in in situations where you've got um, new doctors and new companions new cast members coming on board as well all the time is that yeah yeah so these so novels have got to be written before the the stories are on telly and that's yeah, so, really hard so when i did authors. the pirate loop which had martha jones in it i was commissioned just before her debut on screen mm, mm. and i kind of went so what do i do yeah yeah and, yeah. The, the, and what um, did you what do you do in that scenario well well i was told write a generic companion for the synopsis right and I'll give you. Uh, Justin gave me some pointers, right? Because uh, a few bits and pieces have been revealed about the character in sure, advance. Sure. And then he said, "You're going to be writing the book while the series is on." So you're watching each week, and you're going, "Oh, that doesn't quite align with what I've written." And then you change a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I was actually writing it as I was going. So yeah, so, yeah. And then uh, Joe Lister was also doing Martha Jones's MySpace page. Right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and. Um, so yeah. I, I knew Joe, so I liaised with him a bit. Yeah. And he gave me some pointers about her yeah. character. Uh -huh. And I suggested some stuff that ended up on her MySpace pages. Right. So, um, yeah, which is quite fun to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, th those Eccleston ones must have been so hard, though, because his Doctor, almost more than any other, the voice of that Doctor is so different to anything that has gone before it. Yeah. yeah the way yeah. he speaks and the way he behaves is so enormously different to it. I mean, and he's still fundamentally Doctor Who, but it's so different. And they're also working out how to make the show as they're doing it, and yeah, what the yeah. tone of it's going to be. And yeah, all of that, all of that. But yeah, that's that's TV tie-ins. That's, uh, I suppose that's, that, yeah, that's the nature, on of, other the, TV the nature where, of the business, where, where isn't it? You just go, yeah, I was writing a... I should be careful what I say, but... <laughs> I think it's fair to say that when I was commissioned for 
the primeval novel I did, yeah. the series had a different lead. And okay. after I was commissioned, Douglas Henshaw was no longer the lead, and Jason Fleming was. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of go, oh, okay, I've just got to work that into what I'm, uh -huh. you know, deadlines are pressing, but I've just got to rewrite what I have done with a yeah. new character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's fairly, you know, that's, that's the nature of the business, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I maybe want to talk a little bit before we move on to unpopular opinions about um, about some of the the non-fiction Doctor Who stuff you've done. So maybe things like Who Graphica and um, and uh, and other stuff like that. Um, I mean, what's that like writing those kind of non-fiction guidebooks and, and stuff like that? Yeah. So I um, I love Who Graphica. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. Oh well, bless so, you. So that, so fab. That was that was all the um, idea of Steve O'Brien, uh -huh. who I knew from going to the Fitzroy Tavern back in the day. Uh, and he was a journalist on SFX and was great, great fun company. Mm -hmm. um, and he emailed me out of the blue and says, I've got an idea for an infographics book about Doctor Who and I'd like to pitch it. Uh -huh. And I was like, okay. And I, I'd had some stuff with BBC Books. So I was kind of like, yeah, if, if I'm happy to send you an outline for a a book I've done before so you can follow the format of it and mm -hmm. you know and I can tell you who to pitch it to and he was like no no I think it stands a better chance of getting commissioned if your name is on it as well mm -hmm. which was very nice of him so we put it in and they loved it yeah, um, yeah. and then the great thing about that book was that we so who graphic sorry for, for any listeners who've maybe not yeah. seen it is a it's a sort of collection of uh, colorful infographics of Doctor Who stuff um, and it's yeah very satisfying for the kind of fan that enjoys list making and enjoys yeah, statistics. Yeah, so I spent I spent about yeah. a month working out everybody we've seen inside the TARDIS. And what does that? I always wonder with these kind of list books, what does that involve? Does that involve watching all of Doctor Who again? What does that what, what yeah. does that look like? Right. And and also not just watching it all again, but sort of trying to rationalise it in your head. What does it mean to go in the TARDIS? Right, okay. Because there's a whole load of people we see go through the police box, but we don't see them in the interior. So, so basically, it, or, or, or that come close, or that look inside, or whatever. So, mm. so we came up with a definition. It, they had to cross the threshold of the police box doors. Right. So in... Um, planet of the Daleks for example the Thals in their spacesuits go through the police box doors yeah. and drag somebody out do they and count that, then or that not? Counts. right that counts you know, okay. and then, then you're going in time in the Rani mm. there's a scene where all those scientists are in the TARDIS so how many people are in there who are they so the script right you know one of them is Albert Einstein sure the script tells you that one of them is Hypatia uh -huh. the, uh, the Alexandrian astronomer so I put that in, uh -huh. and then uh, but there, there's also ten extras. So you go right. There's ten people, mm -hmm. one of whom is Einstein, one of whom is Hypatia, and eight other scientists. Yeah, yeah. So well, Louis Pasteur is in there as well because okay. he gets mentioned in the script as well. So <laughs> so um, uh, so you're, it's kind of all of that sort of logical thinking. And are you not constantly scared of oh god, I just know I've missed someone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we did. Yeah, you know, and, and we've had a few. A few people have pointed out things we got wrong, uh, or that they. But you kind of have to. There are th there are certainly one of the things we had to put in a, as a caveat at the beginning yeah. of the book. Is there are things where you just have to make a judgment call as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That things are not black and white. That that sometimes you just have to go with what your 
what your opinion is. And yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Um, and and, one and that's of our, part of the fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. And one of our things was that we should be really inclusive, so include everything. Mm. Um, and then the editorial notes was. Torchwood is a adult grown-up show, right? And we have to be careful about putting Torchwood content into a book that's marketing kids at kids. To, to Torchwood, yeah, 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 that's kind of tricky, isn't um, it? And you know, with young kids myself, mm. I, I entirely get that. Yeah, no. So that changes some of the choices you make about. Mm. So suddenly you're going, you know, which companions in the most episodes? You're going, well, we cut, we're not going to include Martha Jones in Torchwood. Right. Those aren't episodes. So you then go, right, what, say what, what episodes of Doctor Who. So suddenly you go, episodes have got to be of Doctor Who. Yeah. And then yeah. you go, oh, do you include Dimensions of Time? No, we're not going to include that, much as I love Dimensions of Time. Yeah. But there are graphics in which we do, because it's quite funny that, you know. Right, okay. Peter Davison come, you know, when do doctors come back to the role after they've regenerated? Yes, okay. Dimensions of Time is a good one for that. So, mm, so mm. yeah, those are the kind of things that we spent far too long arguing about. And Oh, those must have been really uh, enjoyable conversations to be, to yeah, be having yeah. though, with, yeah, with yeah. And then the people. great, the great joy of that book was we were writing them spread by spread mm. and sending them to the amazing Ben Morris to design. And yeah. he was designing them. Oh, as and you we were getting them. them back, and you were getting them back. Time, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what that meant was that when we delivered our last spreads, uh -huh. he designed about seventy-five percent of the book. Right. Right. So it was really easy to sell uh -huh. you know like all the pre-selling stuff that publishers have to do mm -hmm. which meant that like Tesco I think bought loads of copies of the book before it was published mm. so it was doing really well but it's one of those books you just have I mean when I bought that book I remember that I was um, I mean it must have been a, a, a year and a half or two years after it came out but I was so skint at the time and I just saw it and I'd never seen it before and I thought I've just got to buy it. I don't care that I've got no money. Good, like it's good. so, it's just like magnetic because it's so. Um, and it is probably Ben's graphics uh, yeah, initially yeah, that yeah. draw you to it because it's so, yeah, it's so gorgeous to look at. And we, you know, we were thinking about how do we, how do we do things where it seems simple but it isn't. Yeah, yeah. And so you you end up staring at it for ages and mm. all of that kind of stuff was was mm. the kind of thing we were thinking about. But but you know, we we, me and Steve and Ben have all grown up on books of this sort and yeah, stuff. so it's just yeah. yeah you're just looking for how how can you make something exciting to, sure. to look at and, and you know, that's what I'm always thinking I, I was given when I was far, four or five the Doctor Who monster book mm. which was uh, my elder brother had and handed it down to me when I was basically confused by the end of Logopolis where the Doctor turned into somebody else right and he said well this might help and I poured over that book it's so exciting and yeah. so uh, vivid and, and pithily written and, and whatever um, that I yeah I return to that quite a lot in terms of what a Doctor Who book should feel like I remember pouring over two books um, as a child one of them being um, Gary Russell's Doctor Who Encyclopedia that oh, was yeah. made after series three that has everything in it and yeah. I mean everything it has like WH Smith because the Doctor passes the WH Smith once and I just thought that level of completism yeah. was so extraordinary and I remember then, maybe then going as a child and sitting on my laptop and making an Excel spreadsheet of uh, like an encyclopedia of my own stories. Okay. Do you know what wow. I mean? Wow. Which which was an incredible 
feet of narcissism for a, like an eight or nine year old or whatever. Well, probably eleven year old by then. But no, but, but also, but, but also, it means that I you're thinking that about those. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. Completism. Um, and also, there was a book, and I don't know who wrote this one, but it was um, it was after series one and two, and but before series three, and it was a sort of behind the scenes guide. The inside story. That's Gary the Russell. Inside well, story. Yeah. Is that Gary Russell as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I loved that as well. Yeah. I loved all of the concept art and all of that. And um, and I remember at the end of it, there's a couple of little concept art bits for series three, and I was so excited by that. Yeah. There was and that's, like that's the Doctor Who monster book. Yeah, the so exploded Sonic and everything. That's like yeah. oh my god. Yeah, the Doctor Who monster book had pictures of Planet of Evil and Terror of the Zygons right, before they, before were they came so out. Yeah. <gasps> I mean, and then that was like that was like pre-trailers era. That's, yeah, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I guess the last book I want to talk about of yours then is, is the Women Who Love book uh, from, okay, from yep. last year. Um, obviously, I had Crystal on a few months back and we, we talked about that book and I guess I want to hear kind of your side of things with the development of that and uh, yeah, how it ended up the way it was and, and what that was like for you. Well, it was her idea. Um, uh-huh. Just, I... Um, we did a book called Paper Dolls of course, um, yeah. And Paper Dolls was a way of showcasing Ben Morris's art and mm, stuff. Mm. And I effectively wrote the captions for his pictures. Mm, and mm. it was, you know, I think if you totaled up the time I spent on that book, you know, I could have written those captions in an afternoon. It was, you know, not an arduous job. Sure. But they, um, they said uh, we want to kind of expand the remit of the book and talk about cosplay and right, maybe right. put in some cosplay tips and um, I, I mean uh, you know n- not to denigrate cosplay or anything but it's mm-hmm. not really my thing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. my participation in Doctor Who is to write it mm-hmm. uh, and to find out how it was made and yeah, that yeah, sort of stuff yeah. the dressing up and stuff is not my thing it's for no, children it's stupid right well no no it's <laughs> just it's just it's not how yeah. it's not my bit yeah. of it really um and in the same way that acting isn't my you know i've not i've known people who've got into acting or yeah, yeah. directing or uh-huh. composing because of also that's not yeah you know that's not within my kind you're of, a writer yeah, yeah 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 that's that's how i do it and um so i yeah, I suggested Crystal, who I'd met and, mm. and done stuff with. Um, and knows her way around a, a cosplay as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we me and Albert there, mm-hmm. the big cheese at BBC Books, sure. met up with her and pitched that to her, and she wrote an introduction for the Paper Dolls book. Uh, and then... This was while, she was, al- was this while she was already doing fan show stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd been on the fan show. Right. Uh, and it was later that year, I think. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, because I met her at a convention and then was on the fan show as a result of that. Right, okay. Uh, and so she, after Paper Dolls came out, she said, I've got ideas for books, mm-hmm. I've got ideas mm-hmm. for whatever, could yeah. I talk to you about those? Mm-hmm. So again, like with Hugh Graphica and Steve O'Brien, what I thought she was asking was, could I see a template for an outline and yeah, yeah. whatever? So I made some suggestions on her idea. Uh-huh. All my suggestions, BBC Books, where BBC Books' response was, oh, we love this, but there are some things in the outline we don't like. And literally just cut all, all the stuff. All I of suggested. them were your stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was all crystal, really. And I kind of piggybacked on the back of that. 
Um, then I suppose what Crystal would have been looking for, and this, again, this is not to denigrate Crystal, because uh, obviously she's an amazing writer and an amazing person, but I suppose what she was looking for was somebody who knew their way around publishing a book and had, and had been there and done that before. And had Yeah, there, there were a number of things. One, one was that I'd done the stuff with BBC Books yeah, and Doctor yeah. Who, so I was, you know, a trusted pair of hands on sure. that. Um, two that I knew, oh, uh, you know, as Crystal will admit, she knows... 2005 onwards Doctor Who very mm, well mm. the rest of Doctor Who is a bit patchy yeah, some yeah, of it yeah. she knows pretty well and some of it she doesn't yeah. so she kind of wanted to cover that as well mm. and not just make it a new Doctor Who book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and the result of that was that I I kind of saw my role as I would do the bits that Crystal didn't know very well. So mm. when we, uh, uh, so we came up with a list of who the book would cover. Yeah. And then Steve Cole was brought in as the editor. Right. And right. it ended up with me and Steve taking the list we had and taking that to the pub because Crystal had to go back to work. Right. Because um, she still had a day job and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we, w- we went in to see BBC Books in her lunch break. Right. And after that, she went back to work and me and Steve took the list to the pub uh-huh. and went through it and came up with a list that everybody approved of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Christa, I basically said to Crystal, well, look, I can write entries on any of them. You choose the ones that you feel you know. Sure. You know, and, and some of them were old series ones, some of them were new series ones, depending on what she felt comfortable with. And then we wrote our entries and sent them to each other and scribbled notes on them. And then they went to Steve, who had notes and stuff. So it was, you know, very amicable very easy Mm, thing mm. but I think I'd seen my role as being the sort of uh, wise uncle who would with this knowledge of Doctor Who I would be able to impart my great wisdom of Mm. old show and Mm. this kind of stuff which um, I guess a bit you know I suggested a couple of things or Mm -hmm. but not really a lot the B.I. opener was in the response we got right when the book was announced, which was the vitriol aimed at Crystal, uh-huh, uh-huh. which really was a surprise to me. I mean, uh-huh. that, that's the thing. And she was just used to it. That, that, that was the that's most surprising. The that's almost the, the kind of um, most uh, demoralizing element of it, though, isn't it? How, how used to it Crystal got. Do you yeah. know what I mean? That's the, almost the bit that shocks, you the mo- shocks me the most, is, is how... Yeah, just how normal it, it kind of was for her and, at one stage. And also, there, there, are a number of things, there are a number of unpleasant things about it. One of which was just how much stuff she got mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I was then copied in on. Because, you know, people were responding to tweets that were... That you're her in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To my amazement, there were also people who were responding but taking me out of the response. So she was getting it, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. But they were responding to things about mm-hmm. our book, which was just crap. You yeah. know, just yeah, just yeah. like really petty. I mean, it's ju- and and just like telling on yourself, yeah, isn't yeah. it? For why for why you're making those remarks? And, and the then there were people I knew, you know, people I knew online, but didn't know in person. So a couple of people I knew in person, who I don't think. I don't think they were even aware, what, aware of what they were doing by responding or being part of the conversation. I don't think they mm. necessarily said anything vitriolic against her, but they kind of responded to the, di- the discussion and whatever. Where I was kind of going, 
Yeah, this is my book as well. If you're having a pop at this book, you're having a pop at me. Yeah. To which their response was, oh, no, but I won't, I know. It but not you, because yeah, yeah, you're... Yeah. So this reminds me, and I might well, not keep well, this in, depending on your stance, I, mean, I might not keep this in, but this reminds me of the, the, the Gareth Roberts controversy from a couple of months back. And that the kind of, the situation there was so weird for me because it's like you're, you're getting to see which people you know online, you're getting to see their true feelings about the issue. And you're getting to see their true colors come out. And, and it was weird for me as a person who, you know, in my personal life, I was already a trans person, but as somebody on my podcast and in, on Twitter, I wasn't, n nobody knew yet. So it was weird to kind of see these, all these people telling on themselves about it. Do you know what I mean? And I, and, and kind of, uh, yeah, it was a weird, it was a weird experience. I think it's kind of similar in the, in the fact that you're, you're going, well, wait, but what do you think that? Like, that's really, really odd. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, maybe it's different. I don't know. I think, well, it's not, yes, I think there's a, there's a, a number of issues wrapped up in what you've just said. Yeah. Um, I think with the, with the issue with Crystal and that book was, I don't think, because I certainly spoke to people I knew, mm. more than one of them, privately, yeah. and kind of said, are you having a pop at me? You know, yeah, yeah. Are you aware of what you're being part of yeah and they weren't yeah they hadn't you know because they weren't and really maybe that's the internet too but they maybe it takes yeah, sitting down with somebody they sometimes. were they were responding but they weren't really thinking about yeah you know it was all a bit immediate it was all a bit whatever yeah. and and um you know we had the same thing when the cover was issued and mm. what we just had loads of i mean loads of hundreds of <laughs> was people going why isn't why isn't Rose on the cover? Yeah, 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 Why yeah. isn't Susan Foreman on the cover? Uh -huh. Why isn't whatever on the yeah. cover? You go, Where's well, we Dodo? Can't. Yeah. And and you kind of go, well, we haven't put everybody on the cover. Yeah. That's she's on the back cover. Yeah. Or she's yeah. inside. Or there are characters that I would have loved to have featured in that book. So massive, but we didn't. You can't feature everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and I mean, imagine how horrible the cover would look if you'd featured every single person that was in the book. Like, it would look so weird. But also, there's also, so, you know, I don't know what the issues are on licensing images yeah. of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And, you yeah, know, all, sure. of, all of those sorts of things. Which all are, kinds uh, of reasons I wrote, for I wrote it. the book and I'm not privy to any yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. So, so there, there's that. But, but yeah, people tend to respond and not think about what that response is or yeah, think about, yeah. you know, they, they, there's not a lot of nuance online yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Also, as I said, I used to go to the pub yeah. where there would be arguments. There would be, you know, fierce arguments uh -huh, about uh -huh. stuff, which, and per personality clashes and mm -hmm. people being drunk and stupid and, you know, myself, mm -hmm. chief amongst them. Um, that... Certainly, I think you don't often get online. Mm. So it's a shock mm. when people are rude or difficult or, yeah, or yeah, whatever, yeah. especially if you like their work. And you can, li you know, you can like somebody's work, mm -hmm. but not like them, and vice versa. You know? Yeah, um, definitely. And I think online, you know, when when I got into Doctor Who fandom, it was very male dominated. Mm, mm. It wasn't, there were certainly, you know, there were certainly straight and gay fans. Mm, mm. Um, so it was a bit more 
uh, are diverse than other fandoms I'm aware of. Sure. But online, definitely I saw mm. opening things up to people who weren't particularly comfortable in male-dominated spaces yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and being showy-offy and mm. argumentative mm. and that sort of stuff. That That's opened it up a great deal. But online is also creates problems of, of its own, you know, in terms of people's immediate responses and knee-jerk responses and a lack of nuance and a lack of the, the, the sort of feeling that you have to respond straight away. Yeah, everybody so. feels like they have to say something about everything and immediately, I, don't they? I, I used to work in politics. I used to work for, the, for right. Hansard and the House of Lords where I wasn't allowed to comment on politics mm. on my social mm. media mm. as part of my contract. That if I wanted to... I had to do it anonymously. I had to have an anonymous account. Yeah. And yeah. because I was a writer and wrote things under my own name, I was like, no, I want a Twitter yeah, feed yeah, that's yeah. under my... So I was contractually obliged. That sometimes maybe helped though, right? And and I left a few years ago. Uh-huh. And I was kind of, oh, no, well, now I can share my political opinions. And I, sure. Yeah, because what we really need is another cis white man <laughs> mouthing off about politics. Sure. And, um, and I'm not sure it helps because I'm not sure you persuade anybody of anything no. on these things no. um, very very rarely yeah yeah uh, and unless it's unless it's like I've been persuaded a lot of like you know especially in my late teens I read a lot of stuff online and I was persuaded by a lot of stuff online but it was never reading tweets yeah yeah it was, it's all too it short. was reading uh, articles it was Blog looking posts on Tumblr and, yeah, longer, it, was, it was long form stuff yeah longer, and longer analysis and, and, and like for that. people who know what they're talking about yeah, yeah, and yeah. kind of you know so yeah there are people on Twitter that I follow who are you know, able to explain points of law or mm, points mm, of science mm. or, or whatever um, and can add clarity. When I was studying journalism, an amazing, amazing old hack who mm. uh, kind of gave us some things. He said that as a journalist, he said you should be adding light, not noise. Right. Which I just think is a great, uh, sure. you know, thing A as a writer, but also just in social media. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there, there were things like that. So I, you know, I was kind of talking to Crystal about this because it was a real education for me. Mm, mm. I knew people got stuff, but the level of it, the tenor of it, the sort yeah, of the, the yeah. tone of it, and getting it in your feed as well. I yeah, think yeah, that's and, the big and thing. how it drowns out everything yeah. else because you get eighty messages, yeah, 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 and your one friend who says, "Do you fancy coming to the pub or yeah. whatever?" Yeah, he's lost in all of that. Yeah, so you kind of. Uh, so that was quite strange, but also. But even if you, even if even if it's only one person that says horrible stuff, that's gonna be really loud, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If yeah, you yeah. if you go out one night and everyone's really nice to you, and then one person comes up to you and says you're a little fucker, like <laughs> that's yeah, gonna yeah. that's and gonna to honest, affect you way more. To be honest, I stopped going the to the Fitzroy Tavern because yeah, I had yeah, yeah. people tell me, mm. not necessarily that the, I had people who who came up to me to tell me. I mean, it was bad enough when they told me it was stuff of mine they didn't like. Yeah, yeah, But I yeah. could kind of take that. Yeah. It was when they came up to tell me that they hated what Big Finish did or what the BBC books were doing or how much they hated the show yeah. because of my association with them. And I'm kind of like, it's not my job to defend it. No, it's no. It's not. I, I don't have to. Yeah. yeah, I don't care what you... I really don't care what you think. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so, so there's certain elements of that which... You know, as I say, you you could have in real life as well. I also think, I mean, you were talking about what happened with Gareth and the Target Storybook earlier mm, in the year, mm. which 
I was oblivious to until it happened. I didn't know any of the other writers in the book when it happened sure. and stuff. But then I'd stopped Gareth, who I've known for a long time. Mm. Uh, I first went up to him in a pub in Winchester in about 94, I think, 1994, mm. and said, I'd recognised him from his picture in TV Zone and mm. said, are you Gareth Roberts and whatever. Um, I like your writing. Um, but I stopped following him on Twitter years ago mm. because I found his opinions and stuff objectionable. I found, mm. I, I think what, to, what made me cross was that he was talking about politics and I worked in politics mm. and was just kind of like, yeah, it's, this isn't, that isn't how it works and that's not what goes on or stuff. But he said lots of things that I don't agree with. Yeah. He said lots of things in fanzines back in the day that I mm. don't agree with and stuff. But then I've had other, you know, as an editor, yeah. I've had writers who have said things and you kind of go, well, what do we do? You know, mm. I, I, worked on a, I worked on a book where uh, a, a writer I wanted to use mm -hmm. um, for a Doctor Who thing and I put their name forward and the first thing that, I don't know who, whether it was at BBC Books or at the mm -hmm. production mm -hmm. or whatever, was look them up. And yeah. there they were on Twitter slagging off Stephen Moffat. And not, not in a, I have some issues with what he's written no. or whatever, but in very strong language. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I've known Stephen a long time and I don't agree with everything he said or written. No. And I have argued with him about things that he has said or written yeah. on occasion. But this was not, a, you know, this was not constructive criticism. Sure. It was, it was a nasty and when this was shown to me I was like well you know obviously if they write for the book and stuff it will that what they write will go to Cardiff and be approved and I can't imagine that Stephen will ever see it or, no. or whatever no. but I suddenly feel awkward about that I yeah. suddenly feel you know it's a, it suddenly changes the whole nature of what it is mm. so and there's lots of writers so we could just get somebody else so so that's what we did yeah. Really, um, mm. and yeah, I still don't. You know, I don't know exactly what Gareth said, or what mm. you know. Mm. I, I know roughly, but yeah, they just they just it's, it's not my decision. But but if I had known, I would have probably gone. Well, do you do you need him in the book? Do yeah, you know. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I haven't spoken. I've I've spoken to him very briefly since that happened, yeah. just to say hello to. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's what happens uh -huh. in, in publishing and, yeah. you know, I, I, I yeah, people, jo people would get, yeah, I, sp I uh, suppose as, I, as I didn't want to get, as a writer, yeah. you should be aware that the things you say and the things you write can have consequences. Can, yeah, they that, can, that they can. Yeah, no, I, d I didn't want to get super gossipy about it and super, um, I, I, gu I guess I didn't even mean to bring that up. I just sort of thought it was an interesting parallel there and that. Um, I suppose what you were saying about people having those knee-jerk reactions, I, I, I saw that at the, at the time with, with the Gareth thing. I thought, I thought, hang on, have you actually thought about what, you know, have you, have you thought about this or are you just saying something of, about something you know nothing about? Do you know what I mean? There's so many people um, speaking out on it who seem to, seem to have no... Yeah, no basis for their their opinion on it, and hadn't really given it any any thought in any detail. I don't know. Yeah, I I 
I don't know. I think, I think there's a whole, I mean, you know, it's not really my area mm, to, mm. to get into in terms of sure. what, what his opinions are or, or, or where it comes from or, or what his history within certain things are. But, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, Should we talk about Time Lash? <laughs> yeah, speaking yeah, rich. Yeah, time lash. Let's do that. Unpopular uh, opinion. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I have a confession to make, <laughs> and it may affect my career. Right. And the standing that I am. This might be the thing you get cancelled for, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I really like time lash. Sure. And I it know got, uh, it's not very the good. The target storybook's already been published, and they can't they can't yeah. pull your story. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, they just won't employ me again. Sure. Um, the echoing silence that follows in my career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really <laughs> like Time Lash. I know it's not very good, uh -huh. but I loved it as a kid. Um, it was my favourite story of that year yeah. when I was eight years old. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why. Mm -hmm. I think. I think a number of things really appealed to me. I just thought the idea of the doorway that you fall through into time. Yeah. Was really compelling. And it was the kind of thing you could play. So you could play it at the top of the stairs. Sure. And people would fall down the you stairs. You would break your neck, yeah. And you could play it outside in the garden with a garden sprinkler. Yeah. Which, which yeah. I did. Yeah. Um, and I think... I think there are a number of other things. that I got the book of it, mm. either for Christmas or for my birthday, when the novelisation came out. So I read it a few times. Mm -hmm. So I knew it better than any of the other... Mm -hmm stories from that period that I didn't have the books of. Is the book better than the TV story or just different? I'm, yeah, it, it addresses some of the issues, mm -hmm. but not enough of them, I think. But I think, I think you know, looking at it again, because I knew I was going to talk to you and looking into the background of it, I think there's something really good there that the problem with Time Lash is that nobody has given it enough attention. So it's it's, it's a dismissed new of, it, uh, as bad, isn't it? And no, no. Really in terms of when they were making it. Okay, right. Okay, I um, see what you mean. So, so Glenn McCoy had written two episodes of Angels, the soap opera. Sure. Uh, and off the back of that, pitched a Dalek story. Okay. To Doctor Who, mm -hmm. and they said, "Yeah, you can't have the Daleks, but that we think there's something in this story." Uh huh. Um. And he went away and wrote it, delivered his scripts, having written two episodes of soap opera before mm -hmm. that. Not mm -hmm. a hugely experienced writer. No. Uh, he'd written a novel, uh, but the novel, as were his episodes of Angels, based on his experience in the ambulance service. Right. Um, and um, the scripts are delivered, and Eric Sayward is on holiday, and they're the script editor... And then he's dealing with other scripts. He's dealing with Mark of the Rani by Pip and Jane Baker, who uh -huh. are experienced writers. And he's dealing with The Two Doctors by Robert Holmes, who's an experienced writer. Uh -huh. But those scripts have problems and need rework. Yeah. Then Sayward has to write his own story, Revelation of the Dalek. So mm. you're basically going, so... When's he got time to look at Time So Lash? Time, time yeah. Lash, which is the story written by the novice, yeah. is... Um, is the one that he doesn't give the time and attention yeah. to. 
and you think that would be the one that he'd be doing the most hand holding well, with? You, yeah, yeah, bit. and you know, and circumstances are what they are. But but he admitted, he says in an interview that he gave, I think to DWB, that he didn't give it enough time. Mm-hmm. He only did a light mm-hmm. rewrite on it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things that he introduces are quite odd in terms of the pace and stuff. So Glimmercoy's original begins with the exterior shot of the Carful Citadel and then you go into the chase right. with, with the young people being chased by the guards. Yeah. And Saywood introduces a TARDIS scene at the beginning where the Doctor is lost and bored. And you just go, that's not adding dramatic tension, is it? That's, that's, that's an odd thing to, to do. Um, well, yeah, every time you go back to the TARDIS in that first episode, you're like, oh, come on, let's get on with it. Yeah, that. yeah, and, and, you know, maybe it was underrunning, maybe it was whatever, maybe he felt that Doctor Who should be about the Doctor, mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. that is. You're, you're just going, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't feel like you're applying the right kind of no. improvement to this and stuff. It almost, it almost feels, you know, there's no disrespect to say where he's done a lot of great stuff, but it almost feels like the opposite. It feels like the sort of thing you'd see in a first draft and take out. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, yeah. so you then get the um, thing that to sort of counterbalance, it seems to have been a conscious decision mm. that to counterbalance Glenn McCoy's inexperience, yeah. they get a very experienced director in, mm-hmm. and Pennant Roberts, uh, this is his sixth Doctor Who, he started on The Face of Evil uh, and cast Louise Jameson and mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff. Um, and Pennant Roberts is kind of going, this script needs some work. <laughs> and then there's a new rewrite right. on it. By um, Sayward or by, by Sayward. Right. Um, they know that it's underrunning, that the first episode is too long and the second episode is too short um, at that point, I think. Um, and then you've got things like there, you get to the read through. Yeah. Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant are not there because they're at a convention in the US. And then during production, they're off, right. they're off rehearsing. Seems the, like the, the priorities Cinderella. are a bit off there. Uh, they're off doing the Cinderella pantomime, yeah. and you're going, yeah, the priorities are all wrong. All over the this. place. You should be making the program. Yeah, that's almost JNT's kind of. Yeah, so really you, you just kind of go. There's a whole load of things where you're just going, nobody's on this, mm, mm. Um, which is a shame because, as I say, I think there's a lot in the story. Yeah, that's well, great. I, I think that I think that the design of the robots is great. I think uh, uh, the the production design for what it is bearing mm. in mind it's all mm. studio bound mm. is is quite good I, I think the um, the ideas in it are great uh, you've got um, you've then got a whole load of people who are new to Doctor Who working on it yeah. so the guy who does the costumes is new Bob Cove right. the, the, the production designer uh-huh. is uh, his only other Doctor Who is that he worked a bit on the three Doctors okay. not known for its Magnificent and design. many years before as well, so he's probably you know been doing a lot of stuff in the meantime. And it's cheap; they've not got a lot of money, no. so so it looks cheap. Um, that you know they've got th- they, it's all shot indoors, so there are scenes set in Scotland that are clearly in the interior. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, you know, but but yes, it should be better and structurally better. And then mm. you know it's un- it's underrunning. Episode two is underrunning. So Sayward writes a new scene that they record during production on Revelation of the Daleks, mm-hmm. which is one single six-minute scene. Mm-hmm. And you go, could you not have written two scenes? Shorter yeah. ones and pacing. Yeah. And literally that scene begins with the Doctor listing synonyms. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's Such a Colin flagrant Bakerism. Pla- padding. Yeah. Although, 
as I was watching it again, I was, I was you know, wondering which of these, knowing it was a TARDIS scene that mm. had been added, I was going, which of these TARDIS scenes is the added padding? Mm. Because any of them could be added padding. They're, they're, it's very flabby. Scenes are too long. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff. And, th- you know, and then, then there are things like Perry doesn't, Perry just gets locked up and chained up and whatever. And you kind of go, the, at the end of the story, the, the ball rad is slathering over her and the doctor kind of says, well, if she accepts you, that's fine. But if she screams and you kind of go, couldn't it have been Perry who says that? Couldn't yeah, she yeah, have yeah. had a bit more agency? Couldn't it have <laughs> been her choice? And you go, th- those kind of things. I think all of that. And that's sort of, that's of sort of a dark foreshadowing of what ends up happening to Perry anyway, in a weird sort of way. Yeah, and I think all of that is a... Is a is the shadow cast by the case of Androzani, mm, where mm. where Shara's jet pours over Perry and yeah, and, and I mean it works on that occasion, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, but yeah. but they do it again and again. Yeah, and they do all sorts never, of things from caves well. again and again, yeah. and it's yeah, never yeah. Yeah. It's, well. it's just it, it none of it is as good as you just kind of go, yeah, you, it just could be better. Yeah, but I yeah. stand by the thing that I think there's something quite good there. Well, I, I, so I watched this story, I think, for the first time maybe 18 months ago I would say um, and I wasn't expecting much because I know it, I knew its reputation um, and it, it wasn't very good but it it was it felt so rich I was never bored you yeah. know what I mean I was never ever bored even in those TARDIS padding scenes it was all it was kind of interesting and engaging because I was like what what are they doing here and um, I think the Borad is a really good villain, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think it. I think it, the design of the face looks really good. Um, I really like uh, the ambassador as well. The weird, snaky-faced ambassador. And that's, that's a. That's a. You know, but given they're saving money, that's yeah, a cost-saving thing. It's, yeah, it's a little detail that's like, okay, that's actually fleshing out the world, world yeah. quite a lot. And then the, the the thing I like probably the most, as annoying as the performances, is um, is the H.G. Wells. Yeah, character. So, so when that was on, yeah. when 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 the thing was shown uh-huh. in 1985, I, between episodes one and two, I told my school friends mm. that Herbert was going to be the new companion because right. I was so sure of uh-huh. that, uh-huh. Um, that that he just seemed so obvious. He was su- he was such a perfect foil for the Doctor yeah, and yeah, Perry, yeah. Um, and I still think he'd be brilliant. Mm. Um, I just wish, and I. If you're going to do, if you're going to bring in not just a historical figure, but one who's so well known, mm. you could have done a bit do better some research reading, about yeah. the research is a, is absolutely appalling. Yeah, yeah. It? So, so in in 1885, when yeah. when the Doctor meets Herbert, uh-huh. if that's the summer, Herbert has just finished the first year of his degree, mm. where he's he's got a, a distinction mm-hmm. in biology, mm-hmm. where he was taught by T. H. Huxley, the mm-hmm. you know Darwin's bulldog, and mm-hmm. stuff, which completely transformed his views Herbert would not be doing a seance or reading from the Bible unless to unless to to rebuke them because he you know he was he was atheist from a young age yeah yeah, yeah. also he wasn't Herbert he was Bertie yes Um, and yeah so all sorts of things were and he was shabby shabbily dressed and poor at the time that was the thing he he felt he wasn't smart like he's depicted in that was a defining characteristic of him yeah and you kind of go all of that all of that would have made him a more interesting character in this story but but (coughs) pardon me but that he's there at all is kind of cool to me it feels like very forward thinking and very 
New Huey and like yeah yeah it's like almost like uh, something like di- dinosaurs in a spaceship uh, on a spaceship or um, Victory of the Daleks where it's like okay this is a story that's not really about yeah. the historical figure that's in it but we're pulling them in because why not you know you've I, got I, I also why not have Churchill or why not have Nefertiti yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in the same in the same breath I think what a brilliant idea to have a sequel to a story that was never shown that's, oh that's yeah great. I mean and, amazing and I find watching it again I find myself going what the hell was that story? Mm, mm. Because they didn't. Has anyone have ever done it on like Big Finish or anything? Trying to fill Johnny that Morris gap. I think Johnny pitched one. Right. Okay. I'm not sure how seriously. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. And that doesn't surprise me because like, Festival of Death is Johnny Morris. Festival of Death is very much a sequel to a story that we never saw as well. So yeah, he yeah, must yeah. have he must have been kind of captured by that idea. Yeah. I yeah. Think. No. I think he. I think he had. I, he, I remember him regaling me in the pub with his yeah, idea, yeah. which seemed very funny. But. But so they don't have the time lash because that that's a new thing. Mm, mm. Uh, so that wasn't around when when the third Doctor was there. Mm. But did they have contron crystals? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the Doctor reports Magellan to the inner sanctum for his mm-hmm. experiments, which seems to have been the gist of whatever that previous story was. Sure. And yet, since the end of that story, Magellan has continued with his experiments yeah, yeah. on the Morlocks creatures uh-huh. and succeeded. Yeah. Which kind of go? What the hell happened? What happened the first time around? And yeah. then Katz, the uh, the female rebel, um, her grandfather was given by the Doctor mm-hmm. a locket, which the Doctor ha- seemed to have, For in which reason. there's a photograph of Joe Grant and a lock of her hair. And you kind of go, so did Katz's grand? have some kind of romantic Thing attachment Joe to Joe? Yeah. Because <laughs> even if he did, compared to her attachment to, you know, that Thal at the end of Planet of the Daleks <laughs> or whatever, she doesn't snip off a bit of hair or whatever. I mean, that's so, a weird thing to do anyway, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it just seems very out of character and, and maybe there's something, maybe there's an element where the hair was important or Yeah, or maybe there's a more sinister element. And uh, yeah, so that there's all of that, which yeah. is quite odd. And it's also and weird that Perry recognises Joe yeah, as yeah. well. It's like, has he gone through a photo album of all of the? Well, not only that, she also in the in the beginning of part one mm. um, knows who the Daleks are and and that they had a time corridor. So the right. Doctor has clearly given her lessons. And my my first thought was, oh, you know, because this is an overhang from it was originally written for Tegan. And you go, no, but she was written out in that story. So. There's something odd going on in, yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of that. But the Doctor also knows that his portrait is painted over a mirror. Mm. Because he throws the thing at his portrait and exposes mm-hmm. the mirror. And mm-hmm. you just go, kind of, yeah, it's all, all of How that. How would he know that? It's quite odd. I suppose things like the Dalek thing um, is, is, maybe, is maybe Glenn McCoy, as a new writer, not may- maybe being that well-versed in what... I don't know in what had happened in the last few years, or not knowing whether Perry had had a Dalek story, or I don't know. Well, yeah, but again, the script editor would uh, well, I, would I, and know, should have sorted that it out. Seemed, it seems more like a thing that, as a script editor, you'd put in a continuity reference true, to a true. time corridor. You again, know. it's like a reverse, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't know. It, it, yeah. There's lots of very odd things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, Pe- I think you know, Nicola is for what she is given you know she's not given a lot but she's very mm, good in it mm, it uh, makes mm. it true i think um i really like her costume in it uh she wears the same costume under the blueberry and jacket in revelation of the daleks mm. suggesting that revelation of the daleks happens immediately after they they drop off herbert and immediately 
go oh, off I to like Necros. That. I like that idea. Um, for whatever reason, it seems a bit odd, mm. but um, uh, I, I think. Mean, I mean, Colin Baker's Doctor is horrible in the story. <laughs> Remember in part one, particularly, he's. Well, he's. I mean, you know, Colin just goes for what he's given, doesn't yeah. he? He makes the most of what he's given. I think it's very stagey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, it feels a bit over-rehearsed, in fact, mm-hmm. that you kind of see people run around and take their positions before they need to do the thing. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, Paul, Paul Darrow um, stops and stares off into camera waiting for somebody's line, or, yeah, or at the yeah. end... Colin Baker sort of positions himself in just the right place before his line and then pushes the ball out into the timeout mm. and you kind of go yes if only it could be cut around that a bit yeah, better yeah, and, yeah. and Paul yeah. Darrow's extraordinary in it though isn't he yeah yeah and you know given he, he clearly is making the point that he delights in the torture and the, mm. you know his evilness um, also his idea of playing it as Richard III I guess given that the story is kind of about the Borad being ugly and it's all mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. that kind of you know rather <laughs> depending where you stand you know somewhere between clumsy and offensive on mm. its on mm. its views on beauty and beauty mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. an indicator of what somebody's like on the inside but Darrow within that Darrow saying maybe I should play it like Richard III and have a hump you kind of go yeah, you know that's within that kind of area. Sure, it makes sure. it, it. It's, but you know you can't help feeling that he's basically going. Well, Blake Seven was very serious, and this is Doctor Who, where I can just muck about. Mm. Um, oh. And really, really, you think the irony there is is perhaps he could have afforded to be a bit more serious in Doctor Who and maybe a bit less serious in. Like yeah, seven, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I just think. No, I've seen. A lot I just of think that you know, some that there's there's not somebody going. Can you play? You know, if you play this a bit straighter, if if it was, if we were looking to how do we make this more dramatic, intense, and real? Because they've got that experienced director on it. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But Penn and Roberts is 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 a good competent director and stuff but you just I just keep coming back to the thing of going this is all made in a bit of a rush mm. it's all made mm. in it's not had the time and attention yeah, yeah, yeah. that it should have had and an awful lot of the things that are wrong with Time Match are, fair, are pretty easy to fix mm. I mean mm. what, there's a really odd structural thing that we see the Borad for the first time about halfway through it's about 20 minutes into part two yeah and the doctor then kills him yeah. within six minutes. And then he comes back from the dead, right? And he comes back from the dead. Yeah. And you just go, structurally, that's just, it's just a massive... Why are we not seeing the Borad at the end of part one? And, and, you know? and he, he also doesn't... Um, he's also much more effective in the dark cell. Mm, mm. He's, he comes back and he's a lot less threatening because mm. he's on his feet and he's got Perry by the flipper. And in the bright light and stuff, it, he's just a less impressive... That is true. Powerful. I mean, that that is uh, a universal truth of like all classic Doctor Who, though. They yeah. could afford to light their monsters less well. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, why can't the whole of Carfell be dimly lit? Like yeah, that? yeah, yeah. You know, there's a bit where the um, the first time we see the time lash being operated, all the lights dim and it all goes a sort of peachy pink colour. Yeah. And you go, yeah, it could be like that all the time. Yeah. And it would look a bit more dramatic yeah. Yeah, and yeah, a bit yeah. more interesting. Um, which is a shame because actually. I was talking about that that um, 
scene at the beginning with, with the rebels and mm. it's Steve McIntosh mm. and Christine Kavanagh who go on to mm -hmm. have quite, you know, they're, 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 it's, it's early roles for them and they go on to better things. Mm. So it's quite sort of funny to see them. But they're really good in it. That, that's some good casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The costumes are pretty good and, and sort of dirty and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're not... But they, they don't match the surroundings. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the, the whole idea is everything's supposed to be a bit matte. Yeah. And whatever. And, and you kind of go, yeah, that's just a bit dull. And yeah, yeah. it doesn't feel lived in. It feels too much like the set from Blankety Blank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the sort of perennial problem of sci-fi cities. Yeah, it feels like a game show yeah. set. You're right. Yeah. And, and you just go, yeah, it could just do with a bit more reality and a bit more... It's too late. You know, it's eight years after Star Wars. It's too late to get away with this sort of thing. It's, it's funny. In, in Doctor Who, especially in that era, they could, they could afford to do so much more of what they do in stories like State of Decay and um, Keeper of Traken, which is go, okay, this is an alien world, but actually it just looks like a period set, you know? Yeah. If they'd done something like that in Time Lash and, and it was kind of just a weird, freaky-looking house or something like that, or like a, it was... Uh, I don't know. You, you just... You don't you don't go for the sci-fi city thing so uh, explicitly as as that to yeah. me that seems like the wisest thing. But. Yeah, I think I think um, you know when I'm writing for Big Finish, what one of the things I'm very conscious of yeah. is how do you hide the fact that this is actors stood in a studio? Mm, mm. What can you do to to dispel that? Mm. And I think that's the problem with you know time lashes like Vengeance on Varus, like the Happiness Patrol, like Terror the Vervoids. Uh, you know, Warriors of Deep, a whole load of stories where you go, it just feels too much like a studio set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What can you do to get around that? What can you do to, you know, and, and I don't think they ever solved it. The way they solved it was to do something like Ghost Lights, mm. where they go, just let's, let's make it really opulent and, mm. and whatever. And, and actually, Ghost Light does look like a studio set. But it looks like a high-end studio set. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, yeah, I just a story like Keeper of Traken nails it for me because it's it feels like an alien. It doesn't just feel like a period thing. It yeah. feels like an alien world. I, it, I don't know. It just feels convincing to me. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. But but my thing with with Time Lash is I, is I think it's frustratingly close to yeah, being yeah, quite yeah. good. Yeah. And that's part of my. That's why I find it, for all I loved it as a kid, and for all I felt, you know, and I loved it as a kid because of the time lash, because mm. of the ball mm. rads. Mm. I just thought it was quite exciting, and I liked the idea that it was a, a third Doctor story, you know, and, and stuff. But now I look at it and kind of go, it's so close to being something quite good. Mm -hmm. And they were just rushed off their feet, and it, there were other things that seemed more important. And, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and that's just a shame, really. But there's so much to enjoy about it. Yeah, I think, I think you could probably do a cut yeah. of Time Lash at 42 minutes, yeah. and, it would, and it would be good. I think you could do that with most classic Who stories. Yeah. That's the reality that people uh, don't want to admit. <laughs> but that is the truth. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me, uh, sure. Simon. It's My been, pleasure. It's Thanks been amazing. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter if for some reason they don't already follow you? Uh, well, I am nothing tralala, -la, uh, which is zero T R A L A L A. Why are you that? Nothing tralala. -la. It's yeah. something David Bowie says in the movie Labyrinth. Oh, cool, cool. Uh, uh, nothing, nothing tralala. -la. <laughs> I would never have read zero as nothing. I would never not think that in my brain. 
Uh, you can follow us on Twitter as usual at GalaxyEarPod and you can um, email us at GalaxyEarPod uh, as well. Uh, but until next time, it's a bye from me. And it's a bye from me. Bye-bye.